spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Also, I would like to say, I know that we're a movie club, but here's the thing. Every single episode that we talk about, we tell you the plot of the movie. We do plot summaries. We go into moments. We share things that might make your viewing experience more enjoyable. Um, so if you are cool with spoilers, which a lot of people are, and let's be real, were you really going to watch all these movies anyway? Really? Go for it. Like, listen to the podcast. You don't even need to watch the movies. They're fun to watch. I like watching them, but the podcast stands on its own. So take that into consideration and, uh, just go ahead and listen to the podcast if you want to. Don't worry about watching the movie. We've got you covered. Okay. All right. All right. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film M from 1931 with my distinguished guest, Liam White. Hello, Liam. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. We watched M from 1931 this week. What'd you think, Liam? <laughs> uh, it was it was interesting. I mean, you know this. I texted you last night, and I was like, "Do you want to do a different movie?" I was like, totally down to watch a whole different movie because I have mixed feelings about this movie. It's when you don't love what's this iconic, like talked about film. Suddenly I felt nervous in terms of like, I really need to be able to voice what I liked and what I didn't like. So it was, I think there were incredible stuff in there, but, but it, it, it was not your favorite that. film. And you're right. It has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. So yes, it's very well revered. Um, I think a lot of, because it's like famous for what it put out into the world. Like it was the first to do so many things that had never been done before. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to get into that. I actually didn't mind it. I think you really hated it. And I was like, I kind of enjoyed it. And I'll get to why I enjoyed it in a moment. So this is what the movie M is about. It's a German film from 1931. The subtitles, I will say when you watch it, they're a little hard to read because they did them in white. <laughs> and a lot of times since it's a black and white movie, there's a whole lot of white. So you're like pausing or trying so hard to read those subtitles. Okay, so it's a German film, 1931. It's actually based on a real serial killer. There's a serial killer in Germany. I don't think it was just children that he killed, but he killed like a good amount of people and they were inspired by him to write this film. Peter, Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf. <laughs> so yeah, inspired by him. Um, yeah, so this movie is about a child killer, potentially molester, but definitely child killer. Um, who like stalks children, buys them gifts and toys, kills them. And then um, when the criminal, so everyone is pissed about this. The criminals are pissed about it. The police are pissed about it. No one likes this. And um, eventually the criminals get together to try to like find this murderer because they're so sick of how their business is being impacted by it because they're constantly getting raided by the police because the police assume that this person is a criminal. Um, so it's like the two worlds, the police world and the criminal world. Well, I guess in the middle class normal world, everyone is upset about this and wants this killer to be caught. And eventually through a series of like really well put together and worked out like beggar communities they find the killer 
Um, so yeah, if the police had tapped into the beggar community, they would have found the killer so much faster. But anyway, they find the killer. He gets trapped in a building. The criminals capture him. They hold him at like a criminal trial. He's going to get murdered by a mob at the criminal trial. And the, the police come in and they're like, ha we've got you, sir. And then that's, that's it. <laughs> they ended in court, but you never hear what the actual yes you never hear the verdict you don't know what's going to happen a lot of the things the criminals were worried about was that he would go away on an insanity charge and then somehow be released again into society because that was a thing um but the film ends in like a very kind of uh breaking of the fourth wall way where the mother in the beginning whose child was murdered is crying and looking at the camera and pleading and saying like this won't bring back our kids please everyone watch out for all of our kids watch out for your children all of you like together as a community <laughs> and that's it that's the end of the movie and i guess so yeah. fritz lang is the director he is german <laughs> and he wrote this with his wife whose name i wrote her name down it's like thea von harbor harbo i think it's harbo right thea yeah, von harbo something like that, something like that. Yeah. um the whole time i was watching this movie i don't know if you felt this way it's 1931, and all I'm thinking about is like, oh my god, I know what's coming in Germany. I know what's about to happen in Germany. How yeah. many of you are Nazis? How many of you died? Like, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and it turns out the writers, Fritz Lang and Thea von Harbu, they were married. And she ends up being a Nazi sympathizer, and he flees the country because he is like of Jewish heritage. Yeah, his grandmother converted to Catholicism, but yes. was Jewish. And what's interesting is like, so the German film industry, and I didn't know this, what was interesting is World War I, horrible thing yeah. for the Germans, did not do well for them, but uh, it did do well for their film industry because they stopped allowing films into the country. So there was a boom in the German film industry because they had to like create all their own film. And that was the birth of like German expressionist film. And that's kind of what this comes out of. So there's this huge boom during and after World War I of German films. And then when World War II comes, a bunch of these people emigrate to the US. So like, it has a huge impact on Hollywood. The German film industry in World War II then shifts all this incredible artistic talent like Fritz Lang, just sends them all to the US, which is so yeah. interesting. I, well, I and it's also fascinated. because they were like people that were either like Jewish or liberal. Um, Cause I know Berlin in the 1920s was hopping. Like it was a center place yeah. for people that were thinking outside the box and very liberal ideas. Mm -hmm. And so to go from that to like Nazism, a lot of those people did have to flee, which is why I was like, I'm watching this film going, you're all artists, how did you fare? I think Fritz Lang was offered a job to like work for the Nazis, to like make films for them. And that was what caused him to flee. Cause he was like, absolutely not. Do you know by, Goebbels, like, I'm saying it wrong. A scary fucking Nazi, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <Swing>. Uh, <laughs> You're allowed to a, say fuck about Nazis. A very, <laughs> a very scary Nazi, and he was brought into the office. Yeah, I was reading about that too. Yeah, there was so much underneath all of this, and I think that made me like it more. Um, I'm really glad we're talking about this, by the way. Uh, I'm glad we're like doing the historical context. I want to tell the people at home, one of the reasons Liam and I wanted to watch this, we had both never seen this particular version. Again, I'm going to give you my story about 
my whole experience with them in a minute. Um, but we had never seen this version, and Liam is really good with early cinema. Like, you were my silent film buddy. I feel like you you saw a lot of silent film. You have a really great knowledge for this, like, earlier kind of film that not everybody has. Like, even myself, I'm not a super silent film era person. My expertise comes in, like, late 30s through, like, 50s. Um so yeah, it's nice to have you here because you have this whole other breadth of knowledge that like I myself do not possess. <laughs> you have a whole other way of looking at it. Well, I took a I took a silent film history course at Michigan, which is we we started with Edison's films. It was probably the most boring <laughs> screening I've ever been to. It was literally three hours of like the Edison oh, shorts, which have no story. They're just random <laughs> visuals. And, and we had to sit there from like 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night and just watch that for three hours. So that was that is really my grounding in silent cinema is this course. But, but you know, anyway, OK, so the other reason we watched this film is because my experience with M is the very last thing I did before quarantine, before all of this started happening for COVID-19 was um, Noir Fest was happening at the Egyptian theater. And they were having a triple feature of M. It was this version of M from 1931. It was the remake of M that was made in America from 1951. And then the reason I was going was to see this other film called El Vampiro Negro from 1953, which is the third remake of M, but it's Argentinian and they had a special print of it. And I was super excited about it. So being a film nerd, that was the one I wanted to see. I just didn't have the wherewithal to sit through the same movie three times. So what I did was I saw the second two, which was maybe not smart. I think I should have seen the first one, taken a dinner break and come back for the third one. But I didn't do that. That wasn't the choice I made. So my first experience was the least good of the three, the second one. And that's a very self-important movie from the 50s. And so when we're watching this one from the 1930s, I enjoyed it so much more because I had seen really? I, I the other wondering. two. Because basically, think about it. I saw you knew Home Alone 2 and Home Alone 3 without saying Home Alone. That was essentially what I did. How was the Argentinian? It was actually really cool. My favorite of the three is the original M. I see everything that they were going for now. But the thing that was cool about the third one is it's quote unquote the most feminist one because the story is about, um, they use their version of Marilyn Monroe in the day. Her name is like, Olga Zuberi, I think, or something like that. She was like their Marilyn Monroe, and the movie's about her. And it's her and her daughter. And her daughter ends up being the girl that M kidnaps. And they have a relationship with M. M is like a friend of theirs. So he, it's like, yeah, it was very interesting. Each of the three films have like certain things that are the same. So there's always a mob that goes after the M person. The M person is always slightly sympathetic, which is shocking because he's committed atrocious crimes. And yeah, it's always like, look out for your kids. <laughs> Except the second mm-hmm. one, it's like tries to add an extra layer about like, uh, cops are good, criminals are bad. It like ha- adds this extra super serious <laughs> layer that's bullshit. It was just not good. <laughs> it has a 57% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I feel like David Wayne, who played the M guy, was really good. And I feel like the Bradbury scene, when they go into the Bradbury building, because that's the building they use for that um, oh, like cool. chase, that was really cool. But you can't watch a movie for two hours just to see those two things. Um, the lawyer, you know the lawyer at the very end of the 1930s one? 
um, who's like, I defend you. Okay, pretend he's one of the main characters and is an alcoholic, and part of the film is about like his fall to corruption and how corruption is bad. That's the 1950s movie. I need to see this because it does. Do you mind if I go into like some of my problems? Please, let's open up the problems and I can go into what I liked about it versus the other ones. Because yeah, sure. if I had to give a ranking, again, it's one in 1931. Yeah. That's number one. Uh, number two, second place goes to El Vampiro Negro. Number three, by like a long, long, long shot, is the 1951 one, which I checked my watch, I think, about 12 times in the theater. I did enjoy parts of M. I enjoyed the beginning. That was very interesting. First, that song that they started with was terrifying. I think they said, like, he's going to make mincemeat out of you. Yes! It was like, it took like, uh, what's what's our kid's song? The Ashes to Ashes, we well, all fall Well, it's Miney Moe. So it was like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's kind of like yeah. that sort of game that kids are playing in a circle, but it's about the killer yeah. that's killing children. They're like, he's going to make mincemeat out of you. Like, they're but I like, kept thinking like, you know how Ring Around the Rosie is actually really sad when you think about it? This was like 10 times worse. <laughs> so it was like, yes. it was like a really yes. strong way to start the film, really terrifying. And then the mom was preparing dinner for her. And you knew instantly. You knew as soon as the mom was there, you're like, her kid's gonna get killed. You just knew it. Oh, and then you saw her kid bouncing the ball and you heard the song and you saw the shadow over the poster. And it was just a really brilliant introduction to the to the villain. Wait, can I add some more details to that too that I was obsessed with? So the way the whole thing starts is in complete silence. Like total silence. What's the first sound you hear? I wrote it down. I don't know if it's like a whistle or the kids screaming or something, but it's it ends up being the kids playing the game in the courtyard mm-hmm. where they're joking about the murderer. Um, they're not taking it seriously. Uh, the mom is preparing things for the daughter, and the only sounds you hear are like the normal everyday sounds. So it's peppered by like there's no musical score, yeah. there's no title cards. Like in the 1930s, every movie has like here's an orchestra, here are title cards. None of that here, so it's already different from everything else. We also don't see like this gorgeous, glorious set. We see like a real person's kitchen. Mm-hmm. Like this is what your house would look like. We hear her like washing her laundry on the washboard. And a dope we, we, we hear the cuckoo father, clock. Grandfather. Or yeah, cuckoo clock. That I saw that, and it was just instantly like, oh my goodness, what a cool clock! What a cool clock! But there's all these cool details that like get you in the scene, yeah. right? And then the little girl, the ball she's bouncing, she starts throwing it against the poster of the killer, and then his shadow comes up over her. And I swear to God, he says like the wolf thing. He's like, "Hello, little girl. <laughs> That's a fine ball you're playing with." And I was like, "Oh my god." What a solid opening. Yeah. So yes, opening, super strong. And then he's whistling in the Hall of the Mountain King the whole time. And in fact, that's how he gets figured out. The blind man thing was the same, by the way, in the 50s version. It was the blind guy with the balloons that figures it out, in case you were wondering. (laughs) That intro is incredible. Then even leading to the death, that's all great. Like the anticipation, the mom waiting, asking around. You don't see any of the violence in this film against children ever. And so like ending with her calling her child's name and then these empty shots of where her child maybe should be. And then you see Mm -hmm. the ball roll down the hill and then you see the balloon go past the wires. It gets stuck in the wires first and you're like, no. Also that that balloon is so creepy, by the way. I I hate that human-shaped balloon. I saw that and was instantly like, that shouldn't be a thing. That's terrifying. So that was all great. And then after that, I mean, have you heard the the phrase for storytelling 
uh, especially for filmmaking, show, don't tell. Of course. Yes. 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 Yeah. So yes. People at home, show, don't tell means like use your images, do as much as you can, as sparingly as you can. You don't need to like over narrate or tell everything. You don't need to have a narrator come on over either and be like, this is what happened next. Like you should be able to show your story. And it's often about exposition. You don't need to like say, well, this is what this person, it's like somehow weave it in naturally into the story. And so much of this movie though, and it was done in really interesting ways, like especially for the time with the narration and cutting from these people talking to showing these images. But it was just so much talking about, well, this is happening and this is happening, like over and over, both with like, I don't know whether it was the mayor and the police commissioner, but it was like some politician and the police commissioner. And then when the criminals met too, there was just more talking about what's going on. And then the other huge, huge thing for me was that like intellectually, I found it very interesting where like the whole city was the protagonist, but in practice, it gave you no one's personal story to really latch on to. And the interesting effect was the person you ended up caring about the most is the killer because he's the person's story who you followed the most. You like barely followed anyone else's story. So he ended up, I felt like through it, I cared about him more than anyone else because I didn't actually follow anyone else's story, which maybe was partially intentional, but I I felt like it also just meant large chunks of the movie. It was just a procedural with no dramatic elements happening. I will say, I think that's almost what's cool about it. Like Mm -hmm. how you said that could be its asset was I think it's so cool that a movie that would come out in 1931, first of all, would dare to have that dark of subject matter and Mm -hmm. explore it because you know American cinema at that time, they are not gonna, they're not gonna let a kid die that you meet. You're not going to see a mom lose her daughter, her young child in American cinema at that time. Like that would happen before the film starts. We can't be connected to that. So I think it's like very far advanced that we would see the child that gets murdered, you know, and that this film would have the audacity to show us that in the beginning and then set us up to like the person that killed her. I think that's just so fascinating. Like I hear what you're saying totally about, yes, the procedural and not having anyone else to really care about. And I think that's what the third movie tried to fix. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. By giving us like, here's our heroine. It's about her. Totally. You know? But yeah, I I totally hear you. I I do think it was really cool. There were just so many cool things about it. And probably, again, because I saw the two lesser versions first, Mm -hmm. I really appreciated what they came from, especially the tone, because the 50s one was so self-righteous, it hurt. Mm -hmm. It was so serious. And this was just like a shocking... For a movie about a man who kills kids, it has a shocking amount of lightheartedness and comedy to it. What's funny uh, is that I keep, when talking about this film, referencing other films, but what makes this film important is that all the films I reference to compare like moments of this film came after. So that's what's interesting about this film is that it's influenced so many films that came after it both visually and even in the storytelling. I had that moment when all the criminals came in where I was like, oh, is this Ocean's Eleven gang about to solve this crime? (laughs) Where I really thought we were about to like have like five criminals with each with a different speciality, like solve, figure it out together and form a criminal hero team. I really thought that was going to happen for a bit. 
Because they kind of set it up that way. Like, Liam watched this all in one sitting. I was super tired. So I watched the first half, noticed I was falling asleep, and kept having to rewind the same part. And it's the part you were talking about, when everyone's having those conversations. And it's a conversation to let us know what's going on, but also to show us that each facet of the city is worried about this. So it's like the police are saying one thing, the criminals are saying one thing, but their conversations can be interspersed from one shot to the next. And the way they're going to choose to solve it is different, but it's like they show them all being silent and thinking at the same time. They show them all planning at the same time. Like, that was all cool. But yes, the criminals, like, one of them pulls out a bunch of watches. One of them is doing magic tricks. And they never bring it back. You're like, okay, so his job is going to be to do this. His job is going to be to do that. No. No. They just do it for fun and then never bring it back. It doesn't matter that that person can do magic. And literally, they build up the lead criminal guy is a guy called Safecracker. And they fuck him up so much. They're like, Scotland Yard tried to get him and they couldn't hold him. It felt like kind of cheesy. So it felt like they were setting up like an Ocean's Eleven type film. And then there was no payoff in that. Maybe that's how they thought they were building character in these people. Because, well, there are also moments of levity in it. Like when um, M at the end, I'm just going to call him M because I don't remember his (laughs) human name. I'm sorry. He's M. At the very end when he's on his like fake criminal trial, like when the criminals capture him. Also, side note, by the way, in the three movies, that scene exists. I don't remember if I said this earlier. In the first one, it's like a distillery that's abandoned. In the second one, they're like, it's a parking garage. It's the 50s. Look at our cars. In the <laughs> last one, it's a tunnel under a sewer. So it's like, ooh, ooh all three have different aspects to them. Um But I loved that scene. So they give him a defense lawyer, basically, who really does defend him. He didn't have to do that, but he does. I don't agree with him when he's all like, he can't help himself, so he shouldn't be held responsible. And I'm like, oh, he murdered children. He should be held responsible, whatever. Um, Maybe not like by being murdered by a mob, but like in a court of law, sure. His argument is that he is basically an addict. And that's why he shouldn't be held responsible. The best part of this movie, aside from like some really well shot stuff, Peter Lorre, He is just incredible throughout the film. He really does convey the addiction aspect of it. By the end, I at least bought the argument somewhat. Addiction on so many levels, and even on this level, is still something you read articles about how it's still like this problem we are unable to solve. It's kind of fascinating that they're having this conversation a hundred years ago, and we're still basically in the exact same place. But I will say there's a difference between like an addiction to alcohol or painkillers and an addiction to murdering kids. Like, I will say that. He had like valid points in his argument. And then parts where again, I was like, I don't know if that (laughs) holds up for me. Um, I, I feel like that moment especially showcases what the film is really good at, which is that balance of like, light and joking and levity versus like seriousness. Mm-hmm. The movie brings up a lot of really good questions and points. Well, and I was going to say to tie it in with the other part, that's when he jokes about the man being the judge, what's a safe cracker. He's yeah. three counts of manslaughter. And he's like, that's not relevant to the case. So like, he's not that great either. I did like the part too, where he was like, you're all criminals. Wouldn't you want like a fellow criminal to have the same rights that you would have? I thought that was also interesting. But yeah, that was a great speech. Oh, I love... Peter Lorre's chubby hands might be the second best actor in the film because Peter Lorre's incredible, but then his hands, throughout the entire film, he uses his hands in this incredibly interesting way. The only other film I really remember Peter Lorre in is of course Casablanca, where he's much like, he's like this kind of small, thin little man, 
and he's lovely. I love him. He's super fascinating. But like, he has this really interesting kind of freaky vibe as this slightly heavier, weird, sad looking man with like slightly bulging eyes and like his hands throughout the entire film, they're always like, he's scratching his hands. He's holding them in these kind of like bent ways. It's super fascinating throughout the entire film. And especially in the ending speech, he's literally standing there or so like on his knees in front of them, just like grasping at the air. It was wonderful. Well, now you're making me realize they call him the monster all the time. That's kind of what he's called throughout the city, the monster. And so I bet you that was like a form of monster. I'm misshapen. I'm, I can't control. I don't have control over myself or my body. Okay, I want to stray just for one second to talk about the really cool really? shots. Two awesome shots are when um, Peter Laurie is walking with the first girl that's going to get murdered, Elsie. Mm -hmm. They're walking through the streets, and we can never see what's ahead of them. We're so kind of claustrophobically in on them and we know that danger's ahead but we can't see it and we're oh because it's like you're far away enough that you could just see their bodies but you can't see what's ahead and i was like oh i like that that's <laughs> so creepy Ooh. and then um later on what they do a lot is you hear what's happening in the other room so you'll see an empty room or doorway or something and you'll hear what's going on and that will clue you into what's happening and then like the action bursts onto the scene giving you some sort of like pre-reckoning. Oh, I, I liked both of those tools. Totally. I think the director would have made the film differently 10 years later after he had experimented with sound. This is his first sound film, so that should just be noted. Totally, totally. That is like something that wasn't being done much, at least from my very cursory research, is his use of sound design to show what is happening off screen. That wasn't what other talkie films were doing. He was incredibly innovative throughout this film, and that was one of the ways. Like the shot with the blind man when he's hearing a noise that hurts his ears, a harsh noise, and he covers his ears, and we go with the blind man's hearing. Like, we hear it be muffled, and we hear it, like, open up again. What a cool effect had that ever been done before? Like, that might have been the first time something like that had ever been done. And the use of silence, which sometimes they kind of overdo because they don't know how to have ambient sound yet. <laughs> so it's yeah, just yeah. weirdly exactly. silent. Exactly. That was a funny thing is like a lot of those scenes where it was totally silent, you're like, if they had the ability to just make like a very sparse soundscape right there, it would have been way more effective actually. But like going complete silence really showed that he was still halfway in the silent world. He felt still comfortable going to complete silence. And that I think is something as viewers now, we have trouble with it. We're not used to that. Uh, like even films nowadays that are talked about their silence. What was the film that, uh, the recent horror film where you had to be silent? Oh, A Quiet Place. A Quiet Place, yes, yes. Where like they talked so much about how silent this film was and then you watch the film and what they just meant is that there was no dialogue or very little, but there's wall to wall sound throughout it. So it's like, that's more what we're attuned to now. It's like, yeah. if there's not dialogue, there is such a rich bed of sound throughout every scene. How it would quote unquote naturally be. 
Whereas this, you're right, it would be jarring sometimes, especially when he did figure it out. Because like I said in the beginning, yeah. the mother is in silence, but we hear her household activities. We hear what's on the stove. We hear the washboard. So I'm like, couldn't you have figured that out for like the <laughs> prostitute scene where you're hauling off prostitutes, but it's dead silent? This movie's like a bunch of cool random things sewn together. The fact that like prostitutes appear on screen and aren't completely ridiculed is so great. The fact that they're like swearing and cursing, so this is pre-code, uh, Hollywood pre-code. Well, it's German, so it wouldn't have It wouldn't have mattered, mattered anyway. <laughs> yeah. But like, so the code in Hollywood is about like from 1934 to 1968, it's very strict and you can't swear and you can't do certain things. Movies before that in Hollywood still didn't swear, but they really played up women's sexuality. That was like what made them so ooh, raunchy, scary. And I feel like this didn't play up that, it played up like grit. It had cursing. It was gritty. Um, when the police like picks up that prostitute, she's hitting him and she's like, you bastard, put me down. You suck. They never disparage the prostitutes. Yeah. The woman that runs the bar, she was like, yeah, they're just doing what they can to get by. No big deal. And I was like, yeah, lady, <laughs> speaking up for sex workers. So I kind of liked that lack of judgment about it because I don't think we would have seen that in Hollywood at all, like the cursing and those kinds of things until, you know, the 70s. Now we're all used to it, but... Like, in that storytelling, you're right in that it feels incredibly modern. Like, a lot of elements, I kept thinking of, not to keep taking it back to present-day films, but I thought, actually, a really interesting companion piece to this is uh, Denis Villeneuve's, I don't know how to say his French last name, but uh, Prisoners, where it's oh, I've never seen a lot it. of this... Well, it's a lot of the same subject material. It's about a, a man who killed children. So it's the or... fourth M remake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, it has a lot of the same ideas. It was interesting because that's like, the fact that it felt so similar, it's like, this clearly was so ahead of its time in terms of the type of story it was telling and how it told it. I do think that this is Fritz Lang's best film based on the fact that I, when I was looking up his other films, I didn't really know them very well. <laughs> so I was like, I yeah, think this yeah. might be your best one. And it's because it has this energy. But you know of Metropolis. Well, least, yes, right? I've never seen it, but I know of it. Yeah. I know like yeah. dystopian and I know it was a flop. Those, If you were like, Sarah, what do you know about Metropolis? That's what I would have said. I would have been like, silent film, flop dystopia well it was a flop in that it was also the most expensive movie ever at the time i believe and if you watch it it's mind-blowing like the sets are bigger than anything you can imagine especially back in the day they're gigantic here's how panicked i was about not loving m this morning i woke up and i watched the big heat which was one of fritz, fritz lang's, lang's later films. yeah yeah, yeah, and that was like a very solid noir film. I had watched Metropolis, but I started to rewatch it as well. And here's what I will say is that I think both those films to me are like easier, more enjoyable watches, but M is far more ambitious and interesting and relevant to the modern day. That's, I was like trying to like place who this filmmaker was they're all incredibly different films if you watch them. Like he clearly has done a, a vast amount of work, but like this is such an interesting like in-between period for him where he's really starting out on something new. Interesting is a really good word for this film because that's what it is. I think it's a really interesting film. Um, I don't know that it's for everybody, but I still would recommend it to watch because I think it's a valuable thing to watch. Yeah, I'm glad I watched it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about Fritz Lang for a minute? Because I found out some stuff about him this morning 
where Please. it turns out, so I guess he was so difficult to work with and I did not know this about him. <laughs> so that scene at the end that you were just talking about with Peter Lorre, I guess Fritz Lang actually threw him down the stairs, I read, so he could really be authentic in that moment, which is something that should not happen. It's so funny because he is so aware. Like, he makes this movie Fury with Spencer Tracy about lynching, and he wants to include, like, African-American people in that film and have it be about racism, and he's not allowed to do it. And he has this scope. Like, he, he wants to be anti-Nazi. He makes an anti-Nazi film in Germany that they ban there. But, like, he's not given leeway to do that. So he has this, like, progressive mindset, and yet he sucks to like work with and deal with. So you'd think there would be something in the middle there, like he can acknowledge oppression and yet he himself behaves tyrannically on a set. That's such an interesting dichotomy in a person, you know? You wouldn't like to be thrown down the stairs by your director? I sure would not. I don't, I don't care if it gives a great performance. It's called acting. As the great Laurence Olivier once said, it's called acting. What was interesting, and, and maybe you didn't have this, I was fascinated in reading more actually than Fritz Lang. I was really fascinated by Thea von Harbour, Harbaugh, her, his wife. Whose name we wrote, don't know how to pronounce, just saying. Yes, we don't know how to pronounce most of these. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but she co-wrote all of his films between 1921 and 33. She was born into nobility, kind of a genius decided she wanted to pursue the arts against her family's wishes because they were nobility. And then her and Fritz Lang met while they were working together on a script about India. And this is ironic because she eventually leaves him for an Indian man. And this is what's fascinating to me is that she like kind of joins the Nazi party, but at the same time, she marries an Indian man which is clearly not part of the Nazism ideals. So like, she's a complicated person. Because she's also an actress too. He meets her because she's an actress with the company. His whole thing is he was in World War I, got an eye injury, was blind in his right eye, and while he was convalescing, started writing scripts, and he gets involved with this theater company, and she's a part of that theater company, and she's an actress. And they work together, and they work beautifully. And I see her name, and I get excited, because I'm like, yes, a woman, a woman helped, yay! And then you find out she's a fucking Nazi sympathizer, and you're like, I don't know how to feel about this, because that's terrible and bad, and no. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're filmmakers you hear about who are like 100% down with the Nazi party. From what I was reading, it was a little less clear, maybe I'm wrong, but like it seemed a little less clear fully how involved she was with the Nazi party. I don't know what you read. It said sympathizer. That was basically the gist. Yeah, it never said she yeah. was like totally a part of the party, yeah. but to still not say no to that, that's- Of course. You yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> When your husband is like, Say, I'm going to flee the country, and you're like, cool, if, bye. Yeah. <laughs> if there's one lesson we can give listeners on this podcast, it would be to say no to Nazis. <laughs> Just say no to Nazis. Well, and I had no. written a whole extra layer when I was watching this, because as I was watching it, I didn't know anything about her. So I'm watching yeah. it being like, that's against the Nazis. This is against the Nazis. Yeah. And then you read that, and you're like, oh, no, it really it wasn't really. Like, I yeah, was adding an extra know. layer to this, but it made my viewing more enjoyable. But at the same time, I don't know that it was true that that extra layer yeah. existed. Because when Fritz Lang was interviewed about this film, he was like, yeah, it was just to tell moms to be, like, more careful about your kids. And I was like, that's it? That's 
that's your hole? Okay. Okay, Fritz Lang. Also, the Hitler stash was prominently featured throughout. And I was like, oh, yes, that used to be fashion. I took a screenshot. I'm going to text it to you okay. because I took a bunch of screenshots. I literally went through the pipe dudes. The cigarette holders blew my mind. If you've ever wanted oh to look God. at a cigarette holder collection that is unique, <laughs> check out this film. Well, there was literally that one table that was the silliest collection of German men I have ever seen it. There were a bunch of real German stereotypes that got shown in this film, which Fritz Lang didn't do any favors to the German people when he showed this. It was, it was very silly. The scene Liam is describing, I know already, it's towards the beginning. It's four very mm -hmm. fat German men sitting at a table eating, smoking insane. Some of our, our pipes, some are giant cigarette holders that are curved somehow. Um, and they're drinking and they're accusing each other of being the actual murderer. There is that level of suspicion, which did remind me of like the McCarthy hearings, which hadn't even happened yet. Yeah. It felt very like, a, you know, the crucible, like it is my name, you know? <laughs> and then the other one I really loved was when they cut away when they were lying to the one criminal and they said that the guard died. And then they cut away to the guard with the biggest glass goblet of beer like he could wear it as a hat and in front of him i'm looking at this still right now and in front of him is a plate with six sausages on it like what is happening here and what is wrong with this man oh my god liam i'm totally gonna put this on our instagram it's incredible thank you please, thank you for please. this content yeah yeah I went through and like grabbed so many stills. It's, it's great. Send them all to me. <laughs> beautifully. I will. Oh, I will. Stunning. It's incredibly. Yeah. The use of shadow. That what my favorite shot in the whole film is when, um, you already know what I'm going to say about when Peter Laurie's looking through a shop window that's glass and it's like all these knives and he sees a little girl behind him through the glass in the perfect like diamond shape of the knives and he turns and you know exactly what he's thinking because you can see the side of his face and the side of his eye and the way he's hunched. Oh my God, what a cool shot that was. Didn't you love that shot? I loved the way they photographed him especially. So German expressionism was a wide art movement, but in film especially, it took place like during that boom, during World War I, when they were kind of shut off from everyone. And it was about, instead of realism, about really kind of influencing the image to give the emotion of what the viewer and what is happening in the scene. And so not being tied down to realism and the way the most famous German expressionist film would have to be The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is like, it's like they're acting in a movie in a painting. Have you seen it? No, I, I haven't seen a lot of these. Like, I, this is out of my realm of okay. knowledge. Like, when Nick Lang comes on and talks yeah. about horror, I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's like that. Right? Yeah. I've got my well, realm. The, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is worth a watch because it's, it's so innovative and different. And it really, what's interesting is that Fritz Lang kind of has his basis of film in German expressionism and then he carried over, German Expressionism is known for influencing heavily horror and film noir. Film noir is kind of like a, the Hollywood offshoot of the lighting and the tone that German Expressionism created. It takes that into a more realistic setting. And M is really, to me, like reading up on it and looking at it, 
M is like smack dab the transition point from classic German expressionism to film noir because it takes the lighting and mood of German expressionism and then puts it in more realistic settings and urban settings. And what, so what's fascinating about Fritz Lang is he is the through line for German expressionism. Metropolis, if you watch it, it is definitely German expressionism. And then he makes this film, which is kind of the stepping stone. And then he goes to Hollywood and he makes literal Hollywood film noir films. Like I watched The Big Heat and it's the most like stereotypical film noir film you could imagine. So it's like this man was like an innovator and then ended up working on kind of the pale Hollywood imitations of this art form he was like such a part of early on. It's fascinating. That is fascinating. And you're reminding me that like the article I read this morning had talked about how he felt so stifled in Hollywood, but it was like the only place he could live and be and work. There was no German expressionism happening. Like he couldn't go to Germany. So it's so interesting that yes, he makes it big, he's successful, but that kind of kills the art about it. And this, yeah. this film was the first in so many ways. Like that was fascinating to hear what you were just saying. And also it's like the first procedural movie ever. Like yeah. this is the first yeah. one. And I do want to say, I saw this film as part of Noir Fest. So it is recognized as yeah. a noir. And we were, that reminded me that we were supposed to go see movies there. We were going to go see Gun Crazy and Pale Flower. And it kills me that we never got to see them because COVID what happened. happened. Why didn't we see them? Because of COVID. It was literally the week of COVID. Saturday before the whole world oh, shut down, wow. I saw this movie and we had plans. Me and you and Nikki were going to go right. see. I don't know if you, I can say her name on the podcast. Is she okay with that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we were going to go to the movies and it was like a Japanese noir. It was going to be so cool, Liam. So, Nikki, I actually, I wanted to mention Nikki on the podcast because great Nikki story where I was telling her last night that I had to watch this movie. And Nikki, dear friend of yours, my my partner, my life partner, I knew that it wasn't going to be a movie for her, but she kind of wanted to see it. But I just had to quickly tell her, I was like, oh, yeah, it's about someone killing children. And instantly, it was like, it was like you watch this on your own. <laughs> so if you don't like movies about children being killed, do not watch this movie. No. Although, as Liam did state, you never really see the crime. I mean, no. that doesn't make it so much less terrible, but it really helps to not see, like, a decapitate. And we don't even totally know what he's done to the kids. We know he likes knives yeah. and that little kit. Ugh. But yes, you're right. Nick, this is not a movie for Nikki. No way. <laughs> the next movie we watch, maybe I'll make it be a movie that Nikki yeah, can watch you, you love musicals. We'll put on we'll put on some musicals. We did Meet Me in St. Louis last week and I remember we showed Nikki Ooh. Meet Me in St. Louis for the first time together a couple of years ago. Oh wow, yeah. She had never I seen it. Film. It's a good one. Well, we already did a podcast about it, so too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, especially what you were just saying about this film being referred to as noir, is that I saw it referred to as both. That's to me, which makes it like- Well, it can be stone. both. Yeah, exactly. So it literally is referred to as both a German expressionist film and a noir. So it like, it is the bridge, which, which makes it super important. German expressionism was a super important early part of film history. And then film noir, film noir is still influential to films that are being made today. So it's like that, that has never left us. 
So we haven't really gotten into Peter Lorre yet, but we have to because he is Please. awesome. You probably know a lot more. I just know him from Casablanca and, and love him. So he has a super interesting career path. Uh, so first of all, he's a Hungarian Jew. Like, he's a yeah. Jewish person. I can say Jew because I'm Jewish. Sorry, I should rephrase this for people at home. He's a hung of Hungarian descent. Is that not kosher? Let me know. Is that yeah, no, it's, it's weird to hear someone who's not Jewish say the word Jew. It's just sure, a weird sure. thing, you know? So I don't want to encourage people at home. Like, you're probably not allowed to say it. I'm allowed to say it because I'm Jewish. But anyway, so his, his parents moved to Hungary because of his dad's job, basically. Um, his mother died when he was young. He had a stepmother who he did not get along with. Ooh. So he left. Um, and he became an actor in Vienna. And he worked with Bertolt Brecht. Like, that was his first wow. big... Um, first, he worked with a puppeteer, which I think is fascinating. And then yeah. um, he gets involved with Bertolt Brecht and is in a few of his shows and is a part of that kind of company. And so for people at home who don't know Bertolt Brecht, he totally um, changed a lot about how theater is done. He did something called breaking the fourth wall a lot, which means, like, basically addressing the audience, pretending like that wall isn't there, and the audience can kind of be part of the show. And it was this whole different way of storytelling that hadn't really been done before. Uh, it's really hard to explain Bertolt Brecht on this podcast. Whatever. Let's say this. Bertolt Brecht, visionary director, changed a whole lot of stuff in his time. There we go. That's the edited version. Thank you. So Peter Lorre is involved with him. That's kind of how he gets involved with a theater company um, that Fritz Lang knows him from. And Fritz Lang writes this part for him, like with him in mind. What I think is fascinating about Peter Lorre in this movie is he looks like no one we've really seen. He looks like a little boy trapped in a man's body. That's kind of the image the way he feels that's why you sympathize with him one of the directors he worked with i don't remember who it was i'll look it up later said that he had this ability to to do two things at once you see what he's thinking and you hear what he's saying and they're two different things and not everyone can do that and i thought that was a great way to sum up peter Lorre's acting ability okay so anyway peter Lorre, <laughs> he's in germany <laughs> fritz lang sees him he gets this part. This part blows up his career. Blows up in a good way, not destroys. <laughs> so yeah, M does wonders for him. So he gets the hell out of Germany because he's, you know, Jewish and doesn't want to die. He goes to Paris. Or no, he goes to London. Sorry, Fritz Lang went to Paris. Peter Lorre goes to London. Um, he makes a movie with Hitchcock, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. He had to learn his part phonetically because he didn't speak English yet. And he was supposed to have a smaller part, but Hitchcock liked him so much that he gave him the bigger role. And he just like phonetically learned the language for it, which I think is great. Um, he comes to Hollywood. That, that gets him his visa, and that allows him to go to Hollywood. Um, he originally signs with Columbia. They don't really know what to do with him. He's in a couple of horror movies playing like the creepy foreigner is kind of, or the sinister foreigner is like his go-to kind of idea typecasting. Um, and he's in a movie that I really want to see but haven't seen called Mad Love. And it's funny that you said that thing about the hands because he plays a mad doctor who sews murderers' hands onto a pianist. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to see it. And then the hands start trying to kill. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really want right. to see that movie. Um, so there's that. So he does those. And then um, he ends up making these movies called the Mr. Moto movies, which he hates making. He plays a Japanese. Uh, he's not Japanese. Oh, he plays a Japanese spy. Racist. It's super racist. He hated making those movies. To him, they were just yeah. like <laughs> trash. 
So he makes like five or six of those. He makes those for years, yeah. um, right before World War II. And then they stop making them because World War II is How happening. How does this compare on the racism scale? I think Mickey Rooney has to be the top, right? Is it like close? He's right up there. So I looked at the pictures and it didn't look like they did too many crazy makeup things with him. I was thinking of like Viva Zapata okay. too with Marlon Brando where they, oh God, yeah. it's bad, it's bad, yeah. don't. Um, so yeah, th this is like not as bad as it could be, but still totally racist. I mean, any yellow face is terrible, but like literally Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of the most heartbreaking things in the world to me because I love that movie. You know, I love that movie so, so much. It's one of my favorite movies. Audrey Hepburn is one of my favorite movie stars of all time. I think that movie is incredible. And then it has one of the most blatant pieces of racism you will ever see in cinema. I mean, obviously there's worse, but yeah, it's so sad to see such a great film. And it's like a part that isn't that necessary even. Not that crucial, it's the worst. Yeah, it didn't have to be that way. I've never seen these movies, by the way. I don't think they show them anymore because they acknowledge the stupidity because of them. Because they're freaking racist, yeah. Yes. I will say the only good thing, I guess, that came out of them was they got him out of his contract with Columbia, or was it? He 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 was he worked with like every studio at different times. Yeah. Um, but they got him like essentially out of his contract and they got people to stop thinking of him as like creepy dude. He was playing like cool. the hero. So those are the only two good things to come out of racist trash. Where does Casablanca fall on this timeline? John Huston is a huge fan of Peter Lorre. He's been obsessed with him for a while. He sees, oh, this dude's contract is coming up over at, like, whatever, if it was MGM or Columbia, whatever it was. He's like, hey, uh, Jack Warner, I'm going to need you to sign him. I need him in my films. Um, and Jack Warner's like, oh, fine. I don't know that this really happened this way. I just, like, picturing <laughs> it this way. Yeah. And so they, they sign him, and he does amazing films. This is when we get the Maltese Falcon, his first John Huston wow. film. This is when we get Casablanca. This is when we get Arsenic and Old Lace, Beat the Devil all through the night. He calls it like being involved with the Fabulous Four because it's uh, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, Humphrey Bogart, and Claude Rains that do a bunch of these movies together. And he was like, I loved working with them and I felt like we could really tap into this energy of being serious and comedic and get all these beautiful moments out of it. And I was like, yes, it's true. So he loves working with them. He loves being at Warner Brothers. But the House of Un-American Activities Committee starts to be a thing. Jack Warner is totally fine with being a friendly, quote unquote, witness. And so there are a lot of actors that are obviously not cool with it. And they form like another uh, protest. Uh, I forget what the name of it was. It had a very similar name to House of Un-American Activities. It was like House of the Committee of Actors Who Don't Like the House of American Activities. <laughs> <laughs> like... Actors, very expressive, not great at naming things, not their strong point. <laughs> it was a super long name that I don't remember. But he joins that along with Humphrey Bogart and like Myrna Loy oh. and a bunch of other people and they protest the House of Un-American Activities Committee. And he, uh, Peter Lorre feels like that was the last straw of Jack Warner being like, I'm not re-upping your contract, boy, bye. Sadly, Peter Lorre does have an issue with addiction as well. He had a lot of gallbladder issues and he was prescribed morphine and became addicted to morphine. So for a lot of his very successful career, he was addicted. Like he still had issues, um, which I think is fascinating because M is about like that whole part when he talks about addiction that becomes his life in the future. He doesn't work for a little while. He eventually works in like random things. He's in like a couple of Jules Verne type movies. Like he's in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He's in Around the World in 80 Days. 
he's in uh, Silk Stockings the musical for <laughs> reasons I he barely does anything. I remember him and I'm like, oh yeah, he do, he kind of sings half of a song with some other people. Yeah. He's so unique where he is like the modern actor I would compare to him would be Steve Buscemi, where it's just like they're indispensable. They have this look, this sad, but slightly off. It can be sinister, it can be human. Like there's just something about them. They're unlike other actors. And it's like, they're so essential to the roles they play. And he was incredible in this film and he's incredible in every other film I've ever seen him. I'm gonna read you some quotes about him that people said, cause they fit right in. One of them was, Laurie cannot help but steal each scene. He's a physically present actor. And I was like, yeah, his face is his fortune, is what the Hollywood Reporter said. And then the John Huston line was, he's always doing two things at one time, thinking one thing and saying something else. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a great yeah. way to put it. But Steve Buscemi is a really solid comparison because, yeah, he's got skills. He is a talented actor and he has this very unique look about him. And he also is incredibly sympathetic. There's something about him when even though he plays a sinister person quite often, because his eyes are so expressive and he's doing the thinking one thing and saying another, you see the heart of him. I think he's the key of M. They do such a beautiful job delaying the reveal of him. Yes, they and do. And I suddenly, I had this moment where I imagined, what if it was any other actor? It would be such a letdown. You would be like, oh, this is a guy? All right. But because it's Peter Lorre, it pays off in the most incredible way. The reveal, it doesn't crumble because you have this incredible human being to then attach all of that anticipation to. I will say he is the most evil of the three M's that I've seen. The way they mm. portray the first M is the most inherently evil. I think we only see his back in the beginning. We see him writing these notes. We don't know what kind of person he is. He's, he's the kind of person who murders people and writes to the press about it. Writing to the press back in the day, I mean, that's like your fingerprints. That's like yeah. your handwriting is how people knew who was who. So that takes some chutzpah and some crazy, crazy nerve. Like he seems more like someone who embraces the murdering. I think in the other two films, they were like, oh shoot, we can't have that as much. So they tried to make them more sympathetic. Like the third one, they show that he's a professor and they show all these other parts of him. And then the one with David Wayne, it's, you do feel really badly for him as well. Actually, now that I said it earlier when I was like, I've seen it three times, Peter Lorre's the best. He is the best one, but his M is the most sinister and they gave him the least uh, story. So the fact that you were saying earlier, we care about him the most and he has the least story of the three M's is absolutely fascinating to me. What's amazing is like, he talks about it at the end about his monologue, about looking at himself and seeing this monster and how he feels the monster, which is him chasing him as he goes throughout the city. What's amazing about that monologue is that when you look back at the opening shot and he's not even talking in it, it's all encapsulated in that shot. It's him looking at the mirror. He's this sad, sympathetic creature and then he brings his hands up to his face and he draws his lips back. And you're just in that moment. I, at least myself in that moment was like, this is a disturbed human being. There's something, they, they don't make him just a sinister creature. They make him someone who is struggling with himself. And that gesture 
perfectly encapsulated that. Well, and the acknowledgement of what I look like on the outside is different than who I am on the inside. People don't suspect him because of this boyish, sweet kind of look he has. And so it's putting the monster's face onto his face when he does the frown. And then I noticed it too when um, that image I was describing when he's looking through the shop window and he sees the girl behind him, he grabs the side of his face and pulls it again. And you're right, that's the monster coming at, that's like, oh, that was good. That was a good noticing and shot. Is there more Laurie? I'll tell you his end. So 40s are his heyday, doesn't get much work in the later half of the 40s, actually goes back to Germany, tries to make a film that's very meaningful. Apparently it was decent, but it was a flop. No one saw it. Comes back to America. He ends up doing a lot of really campy horror films with like Vincent Price and Bella Lugosi <laughs> and, you know, doing that. And then he does that a couple comedies That actually sounds lovely. Too. Like, I know I'm sure it wasn't his bag, but like that also sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then he dies of a stroke at 60, and Vincent Price um, gives the eulogy at his funeral. He's buried in Hollywood forever. Oh, he had a daughter, um, and she ends up dying really young of diabetes. She died at like 32 of diabetes-related issues. And she was almost the victim of a serial killer who chose not to kill her because she was Peter Lorre's daughter. True story. That's... The serial killer admitted to this after he was caught. Isn't that crazy? So anyway, uh, her life was saved because her dad played a serial killer. How fucked up is that? But yes, Peter Lorre, that's the end of his career and the end of his life. The Very serial killer life. was like, oh, big fan of your father's work. Yep, he was posing as a cop. That was how he got his victims. He would pull people oh, over. I know, whole dark turn that I took us down. But I thought that was interesting. So yes, that is like Peter Lorre in a nutshell. He does a great job. I think he's a very good actor. And again, yeah. a sympathetic serial killer, especially that really great scene at the end when he does discuss yeah. how it feels to be compelled to do these things but not want to do them. But then I was also like, then shouldn't you just go to a mental hospital? Because you were clearly in a mental hospital and they released yeah. you. Everyone in the criminal camp was like, if they send him to the mental asylum, he's going to come out again. They're going to see he's normal. And I'm like, will they at this point, though? Because he has murdered people. Also, as a total side note, the criminals arrest him with no proof. Just want to put that out there. We know he's <laughs> guilty. The blind man. The proof is the blind man. I know. I thought that was very funny, too. The blind man hears him whistling as like, that's the way. <laughs> it's absurd. Agreed. But, you know, they got the right guy. So they did get the right guy. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, that's some pretty flimsy evidence up in there. And I did love the guy that drilled the hole and went down and the cops yeah. when they pull him up. All of that was really great. That was super funny. Well, that scene, then the criminals breaking into the building was super fun and interesting. It really reminded me of one of my favorite classic films I've seen recently. Uh, have you seen Rafifi? No, I have not. So Rafifi, it's a heist film and the heist though takes place in the middle of the movie. And it's this like, I can't remember how long, but it's like a 30 minute silent sequence as they don't talk during this entire heist because there's an alarm that would go off if they make sound. And so this actually predates Rafifi, uh, the, this French film, but it really reminded me, because literally they create a hole in the floor in Rafifi, and it's like a bunch of super cool, interesting inside baseball ways of like criminals breaking into buildings. So that, I really loved that part of the movie, and it reminded me of, if, you need to see Rafifi. It is, okay, I'll go see Rafifi. It has some, some serious toxic masculinity 
like got it each ouch okay yeah i know it's <laughs> that is a film and it's really strong at the beginning too and then it tapers off and gets becomes a better film but i that is like if there's one film after watching this that i would be like oh and i guess you have your companion piece my companion piece <laughs> would be Rafifi. Okay. Before we do that, you had mentioned how earlier you said like there's a lot of telling over showing, but there was like was one shot in particular, well two shots, the one when we see the criminal through the hole, we know that the police have shown up, but he doesn't. And when the police throw down the rope, we see his reaction to know that it's the police. So I was like, oh, that was a great example of like showing versus telling. And then um, at the very end, when the mob of criminals is going to go murder M yeah. and they're loud and ah, and then all of a sudden they all get quiet and slowly lift their arms up and you're like, ah, the police have arrived. What a great way of telling us that. It was wonderful. Both those moments were incredible, yeah. Okay, the double feature portion of the podcast. What I would recommend watching this with is the other two M's, honestly, like, why not? You can do the 1951, but El Vampiro Negro is pretty cool, so that one. But I also was getting major third man vibes. The third man, yes. 1949, yeah. to me, I think that would be really good to pair with this. Also kind of experimental, noirish, and you're on the chase after a man who is both yeah. sympathetic and nefarious at the same time, who is the cause of pain to children. Him, not because he's murdering them, I'm not... Uh, well, I shouldn't spoil it then. That is completely the correct choice. This is like clearly not not that you needed my you know support on this, but like in terms of artsy noir films, you are right in that like it fits in noir. It's incredibly artistic, and the Third Man is maybe the most artistic like noir film. Yeah, and it's cool. Super. It's cool, cool and fun. A little too long. Shot. Beautifully yeah. shot. Well, I was like, this film at the time, everyone was like, it's a little too long. And I kind of felt that yeah. way about The Third Man, how I love it so much. But I was like, it's a little too long. You could cut yeah. like 15 minutes out of this. It's fine. Yeah. It's beautiful, but it's fine. All right. Do you have anything else that we didn't talk about that we wanted to add? I'm looking through all the screenshots I took. And there were some great ones. I loved, there was a super Wes Anderson moment early on when the old man gets cornered by that bigger guy. And oh, they yes. do the straight on symmetrical shot, reverse shot of like the big man towering over the little guy. I thought that was super funny and super visual and it felt very modern. It was like everything that makes this film cool. It has a slight sense of humor and very visually stunning. Oh, I do want to mention, we didn't talk about the M on the jacket. The way they catch the killer is through a very clever idea about having like beggars as lookouts on every corner and when you see him, the the person put a chalk M in their hand and tapped him on the shoulder so he was walking around with an M on his back, which I think is so cool to look at, such a cool idea. And I do want to say in the 50s one, instead of beggars, it was a gang. It was young hip gang members, which is ridiculous. It was like all white teenagers on every corner. It was West Side Story. It was the Sharks. Yes. Not the Sharks. The Jets. The Jets. It was the Jets, the Jets. <laughs> in California. Um, but yes, I thought that was visually very cool and how the poster is the M on his hand. So even though yeah. that never, ever happens really in the film, I just, I loved that. Here's another moment I need to bring up. The crotch shot. Do you remember that? I wrote it down. <laughs> yes, I was like, what was the point of this? Was there a reason? Do you like see a little camel toe? You do. So for no reason at all that we can discern, the homicide detective on the case, who is a slovenly man, we're below him looking up for reasons we don't, I still don't understand other than it's a fun shot. It is a super cool shot, but it's just like, you had to be able to see 
how inappropriate this shot was. Yeah. I think that's, I'm literally looking through my screenshots and we talked about everything. That last, the last thing was the crotch shot. The crotch shot. And I love that we both noticed that, like, that's a thing we both had to write down of just like, that's ridiculous. I wrote something silly about like, watches and magic should have their own show. I named those two people watches and magic and I was like, well, they need their own movie. That's it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Liam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. Bye.